Hello, everybody. Welcome to this Black Hills Information Security webcast. My name is Jason Blanchard. I'm the Content Community Director here at Black Hills. And today we have Je- Kent and Jordan. I sometimes I call them Ch- Corden and yep. Gent. But that is not correct. That'll work. Uh, so yeah, yeah, got it. Jordan. They're going to give a webcast on the quest for the kill chain killer. And so they're going to talk about a lot of... It's a really dense webcast. So feel free to grab the slides. They're available here in GoToWebinar, which it's like a little button on the right-hand side. You should be able to download them or you can grab them in Discord. If you're in Discord, hey, thanks for being there. It's a community that we use to share our knowledge. And feel free to jump in and, and do that. And if you ever need a pen test, Red Team, Active Sock, anything like that, you know where to find us. And with that, Kent and Jordan, yep. it's all yours. Awesome. Thanks, we, Jason. We, so we've done these for a while now, years now, in fact. And Jordan and I, I don't know, what was our first webcast? I think it was on wireless or something. It was Wi-Fi, yeah. Oh. And we, uh, we had the little MST3K. So we talked about how to attack Wi-Fi back then and then how to defend it properly. And that was a long time ago. And that's kind of led us into a progression of several webcasts. And we're going to talk about a few of them today. But more importantly, we're going to talk about kind of what we've seen in the last couple of years. Jason said this was dense. It is, but we're going to unpack it for you. And we're going to call it the quest for the kill chain killer. And really what we're getting at here, you can, you can forward. Oh, we're, we're, we're getting at something that we realized was relatively frustrating, kind of putting it back together again. Some of our, some of our favorite webcasts, and the webcast that we've heard the most about from customers, BHIS, from our like outside relationships and from, you know, the side channel communications, which happen for group policies that kill kill chains and active directory best practices. We heard about these over and over with such a consistent theme of thank you, you know, like thank you for putting this together. But it's been three or four years and really not much of the material has changed because we still are seeing the same stuff. Hey, if you want to know more about us, look on the website. We're not going to have five minutes about us. All right, so we, we want to do this webcast on everything we saw in the last year after, uh, like, leading into COVID and, and what everybody had to do for COVID and then how that affected baseline security. And we did a bunch of research on it, and it was kind of defeating because we found out is that, wow, not really that much stuff has changed. Let's talk about things then. Okay, so what changed from last year? Well, the threat vectors moved to employees' home networks, right? So you've got where organizations before working from home was in, in some organizations completely acceptable. In other places, it was almost taboo. And all of a sudden, boom, you had to go there and work, right? That was, that was becoming the new norm. Something else big that happened was supply chain management had this new huge focus because a, a certain biggie got hacked. And that's the, the CID CD pipelines. CID CD. Thank you. Okay. And interesting, but when you look back on it, those are the two big ones, right? And then, well, what about ransomware? That was just a couple of days ago. And then service misconfiguration. So something interesting about this, behind us is a board that Jordan and I wrote. With years. interns, right? So some interns were actually paid to help us put this together. Yes. We haven't touched this in about, I don't know, two, three years. And you probably can't read it, but right there is ransomware. That was an issue two or three years ago. We were talking about two or three years ago. It was significant enough to talk about then, and it, it's still an issue. Why? <laughs> And, and what we kind of came up with then is that, well, maybe it really didn't change that much. And that is rather frustrating. So a lot can fail. A lot did fail. And when we looked at it, we've seen that attacks are still working without being targeted. And 
Ransomware, maybe it's Target. I don't necessarily think it is. You can, you know, we could always just like drop a, th- a thumb drive in a hallway and hope someone plugs it in. Is that Target? I don't know. Yes, maybe, maybe not. Didn't the test this year say it was still 50 or 60% of USB drives get plugged in? Why wouldn't it? Right? It's, I mean, I, I need a place to put my MP3s. So here's the thing. Targeted attacks, yes. If you listen to John a couple of days ago, he talked about targeted attacks. And we're saying that a lot of attacks, even from our perspective when we're doing penetration testing and we're trying to provide our clients with configurations that help secure their environments, what we've seen is that the, the baseline defenses are continuing to grow, meaning as a baseline defense, you still need, you need to do more and more just as baseline, not to prevent from targeted attacks, but just to, to prevent the attacks that are, are going to happen without targets, right? Without being, uh, we're going to attack this very specific place with this specific person that's the CEO or, you know, having to do reconnaissance on a very large organization down to find that very, that little small chink in the armor. And because of that, these targeted attacks work. And ultimately, baseline defenses are going to have to go to cover it. Now, this next slide. uh, uh, Well, don't the baseline defenses not only have to grow, but don't we have to start with our baseline defenses? Because they're still missing. Okay. so. Jordan and I teach a class, and we always talk about Windows and Active Directory defaults, right? And why they are maybe not secure or maybe not secure for a, a sensitive environment. And we go into some amount of detail about that, about why there's, there's defaults and why they are what they are. And baseline defenses are actually quite a few steps above default. So if you're running a default environment, your baselines are, are right there are not going to be enough. And yeah, they are going to continue to grow just because there's new threats out there every day, which brings us to another conversation about what those threats are and how those come up. Oh boy, it's going to be an interesting one. Okay, so Jason said this was a heavy packed webcast and I, I don't want it to be that way, but it's going to look that way. Yeah. The reason for that is we've taken about five webcasts and we're kind of like getting to the meat of it about what led us to where we are today. I would like to add here that some of you who have been following BHIS religiously or our knowledge sharing, you know, consistently over the years, should recognize this slide. We've we we stole this from ourselves to reuse to demonstrate it's all the same stuff. The question I always get asked, are those my kids? No. Actually it's those might be my kids when they were younger because we maintain yeah, grapevines. They are gardening. All right. So look, if you're not doing the things on the right, we can potentially get DA in a couple minutes. And that's no joke. In fact, yesterday, because of SPNs, right, we were able to crack password in about two hours. That was DA account using nothing but a computer NTLM hash. And this came out of another really cool thing we do, which is show and tell. And Moth here in our channels, like he poisoned LLMNR, relayed, dumped SAMs, got a user, did the same standard attack chain we do all the time. You Kerberost. You pull the, you know, the Kirby's down, we call them, and guess what? Cool ties. Game over. You know, we were told not to wear ties. <laughs> Check this out. We're going to go to the next slide. So this is a slide you might recognize from a couple of years ago, and it's still relevant. I need to pick the low-hanging fruit. Okay, the low-hanging fruit, right, is going to be that baseline stuff. If you run a Nessa scan, the low-hanging is going to be anything that's higher medium. If you do a pen test, right, if, you, if you're paying for a pen test and you already have mediums and highs in your environment, you're, I don't want to say you're wasting your money, but 
unless you're trying to get clout to get those resolved, I mean, frankly, you already paid for Nessus. You, you should have the clout to get those resolved anyway. And yeah, some some organizations do get stuck in trees, quite frankly. Yeah, Craig did. I read one of Craig's reports yesterday, and it was really interesting. He summarized those findings, despite having individual findings. Like when we go to do our executive summary, the point of having a vulnerability scan filled with red and purple and orange is that you're probably not managing your patching very well. And from our perspective, why not? You know, it's, it's hard. Like inventory is hard, sure. But if you're not assigning people to be a point of contact for an inbound security solution and then having a checkbox that says you're going to go register the email and when the vendor notifies you via email that there's available updates, it's your responsibility also to follow the entire chain. Oh, we're going to talk about updates today. <laughs> we'll definitely be talking about updates today. Okay, we're moving on from this slide. The next slide is another packed and condensed one. Again, another slide from a couple of years ago. Look, we called them prereqs because baseline, you actually have to have all this stuff. An interesting one is the OSI model. And last year, two years, whenever we wrote this, that used to say, know your stack, right? And we changed it this year from know it to understand it. The idea here is that there was a really bad supply chain attack that affected a lot of organizations. And I get it. Like, I'm not, we already had a webcast about discussing that. There's been webcasts in the past about it. I don't want to go into detail about that again. But every application in your environment, you better know how it interacts, right, with everything else in the environment. If you don't know, spend the time to look, to learn it. Every one of your developed applications, all of your operating systems, all of your external data resources, any type of data inflow, outflow, all of that you should understand how it works. Put it on a flowchart and figure it out. And actually attach it to an OSI model. Understand what's happening with that. Understand the protocols about how it's working. Another big one this year was centralized logging, right? We've... We used to joke about Splunk because it was going to be like a $2 million investment. But man, you have to have centralized logging. You really have to be able to respond to threats when they come up and figure out exactly what's going on. There's different ways to do that. BHS just launched a new service, the Active Sock, that goes into a lot of detail about how to do that. But there's lots of ways of doing it. Um, Jordan and I teach a class, Applied Purple Taming, that goes into running attacks and then figuring out how to detect them, putting them into a centralized environment so that you can report off them and, and react on them. Are the ones that are big this year, honeypots and cyber deception, those are coming up because at the end, when you have all these things set up, we're, we're now saying that you need to do this as a baseline, yeah. as, as a baseline. And the reason 100%. is it, it's free, right? And, and free, free. It, it's going to be things like you already have Windows Active Directory. So these are components you can put in, in Active Directory that will gain you the visibility in your environment when things are potentially hacked. Other big ones, VPNs, right, and MFA. VPNs were big this, this last year because everybody had to go home. Everybody was working from home, and in some environments that wasn't happening in the past. You know, we, we did a test with someone that they actually wanted, one of our specific tests was they gave us the scenario of someone working from home, and they are able to give us uh, an implant on that machine so we could test from that. What we were able to find is that from the system that was the, the employer's system on the employee's network, we were able to connect to the VPN, the, the customer's VPN, right, to their corporate network, and be able to access both the employee's home devices as well as 
the employer's corporate network devices in one place, right? That VPN dual homing issue that Cisco had remedied a long time ago is now an issue because if you've just now deploying VPNs in that environment, you may have never gone through and hardened it. And now all of a sudden last year, everybody was moving to work from home. And there was a lot of best practices that could have gotten missed. Also, reconnaissance is a big one. You know, the questions come up, especially with breaches and, and data loss, right? When stuff gets posted out onto, uh, online. Are you able, if someone posts something, if one of your databases is posted online, how quickly will you know about it? Are you going to know about it because there was ransomware that someone threatened you first? Or are you going to know about it just because it hit the internet and got indexed and were able to find it that way? Work from home was big this last year, for sure. All right. And there was a rush. And guess what happens when you rush any project? Security is last. I mean, we're not even talking about Zoom. Think about, think about everything that happened from Zoom when everybody moved to Zoom. Yeah, the installation of Zoom on Windows boxes early on ended up with a localized web server with RCE. Remember that? And then uh, there was... That was, a, that was 100 years ago at this point. <laughs> it was just last year. Oh, man. We say nothing happened last year, but so much happened last year. Okay. Again, another slide from a couple of years ago. This one is really packed as well. Things in Active Directory for best practices. If you have not, okay, if you have, if you have inherited an Active Directory environment that started with NT4, and then it went to 4.5, and then it went to 2003, or 2000, then 2003, then 2000. Ouch. Oh, ouch. 2008, ouch. 2012, 2016, 2019. Listen, you've probably got a lot of mess in there unless you've taken the time to clean it up. Back in the day, I said earlier in, in pre-show banter, I talked about how my MCSE is retired, right? So I probably shouldn't even be able to talk. I could talk about this, but I can't talk about how it applies to 2019, whatever. Okay, check us out. It's like my CCMP. <laughs> I'm so disappointed I let that one go. The juggler and the a gloop are the same processes. It's how you should be managing your, your user accounts and computer accounts with groups in Active Directory. Why those exist are, are meaningful. Now, we're not going to talk about them today because the, the point is here is that there's best practices and you need to be following as a baseline, right? If you're not, go through this process. The process of going through every one of these bullets on this list is free in terms of monetary costs. It's not free in terms of time and resources. There's a key indication there. We'll say it's free, but realistically, we know it's not. We know that you have to have put resources on this. The ultimate consequence of every one of these bullet points, though, is overall, you're going to harden your security posture. And some of that is the like indirect result of having a more administratively light active directory environment because you've got things that are able to be managed easier, more efficiently. Front end investment resulting in yes, and trust me, improvement in management. We definitely acknowledge if you have a messy environment how difficult it is to clean up. It is it is painful, and we get it hundred percent. It's become a popular service here too. A lot of people are asking, can you help us clean up our AD infrastructure? Can you give us can you look at it? Can you make recommendations? Can you? We see, we, we've had some pen testing, penetration tests in the last year where we see these things being deployed like properly. And I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Like they're doing it. This is so great. And then we see other penetration tests where they haven't done any of this, right? None of it. And we get into it and it's, it becomes so easy for us to, to pivot through the environment. It's kind of trivial at that point. We just say, you know, Go ahead and watch that webcast. Go watch that one. Next year's budget has entered the chat. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That is funny. All right. Jason said this was packed. We're, we're going to jump right through this. Yeah, yeah, this stuff is out there. There's, there's definitely more 
Yes, time spent in the other webcasts. So please. Right. OUs. So in Active Directory, you have OUs, right? There's best practices with those two, especially with how you deploy group policies. We're going to talk about group policies here in, in a couple minutes, but I wanted to point this out, LSDOU. We've got the, uh, the LSD cat there. Local site domain, organizational unit. If you don't know those things, right, then you need to go back and watch those webcasts because it, these are fundamentals in Active Directory, and if you're not doing them now, you need to, right, because you're going to gain so much security posture just by, by aligning Active Directory to a best practice that works and is more efficient. There's some other ones in there too, but ultimately nothing with these is really new, but the point is that it's still happening. We're seeing movement, we're seeing organizations doing this, but not everywhere, and, and we wanna see it because when we get into these environments and they're, they're done properly and it's a challenge for us to do, for one, a challenge for us is always a little bit better than going in like, oh, we got DA in the first day. And it's kind of like, well, now we're writing a report the entire time, just doing the, the pathology of how we got there. And then we feel kind of bad because we're ultimately not going to have enough time to do all the, the finding validation because there's so many, right? When you do a pen test, try if you can to have a lot of those low-hanging fruit taken care of. Run a Nessus scan. If you don't have Nessus right now, or if you have Rapid7, awesome. There, there's lots, there's Qualys. In five years, the license for Nessus Pro has doubled. It's it now 2800 I think. I believe it also went public, so, you know. Oh, yeah. There was that this year, there. too. Last yeah. year, really. Mm-hmm. All right. What are you going to do? Let's talk about the network. If we go, yeah, let's go back now. Okay. We, we've done some review. We've talked about our prereqs. This, this is where we start, or a lot of the time, where we start our pen tests. What does your Layer 2 environment look like? And this will truly tell us a ton of, I guess, information about your security posture overall. If you've forgotten that your layer two network is of critical importance to your security because you're focusing on your domain efforts or you're focusing on your exterior boundaries, your egress traffic, you're forgetting about what's going on inside your environment. And these layer two protocols still allow us to escalate privilege, move around really easily, potentially jump VLANs and get access to other systems, analyze things like snacks, there's no direct reference to it in here, but if you go look up the Eves ARP toolkit from Mr. Angel, and this is basically a stale network address configuration object, meaning let's say you had a switch at one point. That switch was pointed at a syslog box, and then that syslog box went away, but you never removed the record in your switch. You can potentially discover that with ARP, call it a snack, and then, you know, get logs from that switch. Tasty. So one thing to point out here, we said layer two. We didn't actually give any context to what that meant. There was a bullet point a couple of slides ago that said, understand your OSI layer and your OSI model for all of your applications and protocols. That's where this comes into play, right? MDNS, LMNR, MBNS, DHCP, ARP, SNACs, all operating at the layer two in the OSI stack. You need to understand how those work because ultimately all of those have some sort of vulnerability with them. And if you're not managing those vulnerabilities or actually changing configuration from defaults, you could be vulnerable. More than 50% of the enterprises we test still have LMNR and NBNS. And the privilege escalation, because you're not addressing some other things we're going to talk about here, it just, it allows our tradecraft to go so quickly. We're effective at testing environments now because we've done it so often and we still see these same things. So we are just improving our tradecraft for testing for these vulnerabilities. There's no, okay, there is a finding in Nessus for some of these. And MDNS is something I can test for remotely. I think that's the only one, and I think it's a guess. 
And I believe there's also a finding if it knows that there's L and R poisoning. It'll actually, because you'll have one, organi- one system with one ARP address that's replying to a bunch, and they can find that What if it's on layer two. The point I'm making that is that you have to know about these things because Nessus might not report on it, but it could be a very critical vulnerability that leads to DA very quickly. Yeah, and that's very true. We, we talk about MD- NBNS. It's on. If you plug an adapter into any Windows system, NBNS is enabled by default, unfortunately. This is a very challenging one to address, but we do have a slide with a PowerShell script in it and some reference material, yes. so we're almost there. We, we're going to talk about that one in a couple moments. This is a, a blog I wrote uh, 2018, so three years ago now. Let's be honest here. This is the most popular blog that BHIS Click Through has ever had. It's, it's very, very... It's useful. It is very useful. It got picked up by several other, I don't know, bloggers, I guess. What's interesting about it is that if if you look, if you deploy Active Directory, there's nothing that says, oh, by the way, go do this, right? It it doesn't exist. If you look at group policies, you have thousands upon thousands of different configurations you can make, and none of them say, this one's really important, go enable me. Hmm. This one is really important. Go enable this one. We're going to have a discussion really quick. But first, I want to talk about what LMNR works. Okay, if you've gone to our webcast, you've heard this like so many times before, so we're going to do it really quick. The image here explains it really well. Hey, John, are you there? And then John says, yeah, I'm here. But in between John and me was somebody else saying, yeah, yeah, I- I'm right here. I'm John. That's effectively what that attack looks like for LMNR and NBNS. You have someone... Poisoning the network. Now, the reason this works is because of default configurations in Active Directory and also Windows in general. That's, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about how to do it, but if you've heard of Responder, we talked about it in pre-show banter a little bit. That's where this comes into play as well, right? Because essentially you can steal hashes, password hashes for user accounts using this method right here. And in our, in, in our world, having a password hash, which is a, a mathematical algorithm for a password representation, Having a user account or username and a password hash is effectively a credential set that we can use for whatever we want, more or less. Warning rant inbound. Yeah, there's, there's going to be a Ken's about here. to get angry. I said I, said I was going to research and find something new in 2021, and I said there wasn't a whole lot, and this one really bugged me. In fact, it was last month. Does it grind my gears? I don't know. I tried to be really stoic about it, so maybe, maybe not. This is the unaddressing of LLMNR. It could also be the disabling of enabling of disabling GPO, because when you enable the GPO to reduce the vulnerability of the LLMNR protocol, you're actually enabling and disabling. So now we're going to disable the enable of the disabling GPO, or the internet is always not, isn't always a sysadmin's best friend. As I said, right? I don't know. There, there is, fair warning, a vendor is about to get called out. And it's because they blatantly disagree with the security posture that LLMNR should be disabled. And, and multiple vendors, in yeah, fact. Fair. And I can justify almost all of them if I really wanted to. I tried to be stoic. All right, KB51330 is a very interesting update. Not really. It's just like every other Microsoft update. It, had, it was a cumulative update from April. So if you're running Windows 10, you got this update for April that came packaged and up it went and it had a bunch of other updates in it. We had one interesting update inside of those packaged together. 
Now, this is in terms of L and R, right? So what you have, I, I pointed out Dentrix here. So this update was pushed out to a bunch of systems, lots of places. It's a mandatory update, mind you, inside the package updates if you're not managing updates. Dentrix had to create a, a file on this because effectively wherever this got deployed to, in certain circumstances, it broke their software. It broke their database. Unable to connect access to, to the database. Access to the database. Thank you. Unable to connect to database, e-sync, connectivity issues, registration due to Windows update, blah, 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 blah. Interesting. April 14th. Okay. Right-hand side here. They, they updated this at 4.20 p.m. After working with Microsoft, we believe that we have found a solution that allows you to keep the critical Microsoft security update installed. It appears that the issue can be resolved by enabling LLMNR. Now we know that anybody using Dentrix software also has other latent vulnerabilities hanging around their network, resulting potentially in privilege escalation, credential capture, relay, and other ways of getting a hold of medical data. It came from a vendor, Dentrix. Now I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be stoic about it. It's fine, right? Everything's fine, right? Everything's fine. Everything. This is fine. They talked to Microsoft, who said, this is a good fix. Too many snacks cause cavities? <laughs> Re-enabling re this group policy seems to restore proper IP address resolution, which in turn restores connectivity to the Dentrix database to enable LMNR. Follow the steps below. Go do the exact opposite of what our blog says to do. The exact opposite. Now, just, just bear in mind for a moment, first off, if you have to go change this group policy, it is an issue because the group policy is already set properly to give you a hardened environment, right? So this is not a problem because the default is disabled. The default is disabled. The blog that I wrote says go enable it because the enable is actually turning off multicast name resolution. Okay. So they're saying this only happened in places that had a policy that was meant for security. Let's get that straight. The only reason you really have this group policy here is to increase your security. And now you've got a vendor that says, oh, that group policy is the problem. Let's fix that. Now, how many ways are there to turn a host name into an IP address? Well, first off, the obvious is DNS, is it, is right? Four, three? There's DNS, there's WINS, there's LMNR, there's MDNS. NBNS. MBNS. An interesting one here is a host's file. Oh, that has been around since when, the 80s? Okay, here's the thing about host file. I personally never want to touch a host file. Like, you can do great things with IP restrictions and CDNs and, and WAFs and firewalls. And an interesting thing with that. Next slide. Let's keep going. I'm yeah, listening but, still. You, okay. That's still a valid point. doesn't change anything. It doesn't. Okay. Dentrix, I, I don't blame you-ish, okay? I get it. You needed to get your customers back online as fast as you could. You had a commitment to doing that, and you called Microsoft for their help, which is pretty cool. Nine days later, nine days later, they, they posted an update that said, oh, by the way, we talked to Microsoft again, and we now have a way to un-update the update, and we're going to remove the specific component that caused the problem. So here's how you undo the update. Okay. Reasonable. It took nine days. I don't think anybody could get hacked in nine days, right? Hmm. Here's the problem with this is that Everybody that just turned the GPO off now is working, it is now working, right? Because you've now introduced a security vulnerability, but you've also fixed the problem. So now you're going back and saying, okay, what I need you to do now is go unupdate something, which is actually sound really painful and could cause more problems. 
And then after you do the un-update, oh, by the way, here's how you re-enable that GPO that you had turned on before. Why? Well, there could have been a GPO that they created that sent a host file that could have done this exact same thing. But, okay, here, here's my questions on this. The internet trusted you without regard to context. The support document that we have linked here, it's fine. Honestly, it's fine. But support document linked here, there were other issues re regarding this exact same cumulative update. Updates, there was issues with GPO, with, sorry, with GPUs. There was update problems with blue screens. There was update problems with DNS resolution that were actually the same issue as this. Here's the problem. You said KB500-1330, you made it a public document. I'm not criticizing that at all, but here's the problem. The internet said, oh, you have this issue too? I heard this fix blue screens. I heard this fix issues with GPUs and low frame rates in gaming. Okay, the gaming one maybe is not that big of an issue, but let's consider it. You now have people on the internet that are regurgitating your support document, putting it outside of context, telling everybody to go ahead and enable LMNR because it fixes all the issues with 500.1330. Did it really fix all the issues? No, it fixed one in one very interesting use case. Okay, it fixed the issue here. In fact, it fixed other people's issues that were on work groups that were using SMBV1. What's the exact cause of all this? I don't know, I tried to figure it out. I really can't. I have some questions though. Was LMNR risk acknowledged? Was it acknowledged by Microsoft? Was it acknowledged by Dentrix? Not in their support document, it wasn't. Was it on a phone call between Dentrix and Microsoft? I don't know. Why did this even happen, right? Lots of applications, lots of databases, lots of programming. There's vertical industries everywhere that have custom programming. Why did this update from Microsoft cause this to break? My understanding on how Dentrix works, and actually we've supported both of this in the past, is it relies on SMBV shares, sorry, SMB shares, file shares. Very interesting because anytime you're using Responder and talking about LMNR, SMBV, you know, SMBV1 particularly comes into play quite often. Is the programming that they used like in the protocol margins, meaning if you've got this nice clean mode protocol that's an RFC spec, the protocol that Microsoft may actually be using is kind of like out here, right? We're not talking SIFs and then SMB is out here. If you program in this area here, Microsoft eventually will start to get closer and closer to RFC spec, and then things might start to break because you programmed in the margins of that spec. Another question. Do you, this might be for Dentrix. I'm not blaming Dentrix. Please understand that. Do you test your typical customer environments with OS updates and CICD? Consider this. If you are an organization that develops things, these are questions that you need to be asking, right? Your software, are you actually testing it in your customer's typical environments as well? Do you have stand-up environments where you can test your software against upcoming Microsoft updates? Should you? Whose responsibility is that? And this one is interesting too. What are even best practices? What are they for clients, for vendors, for MSPs? I'm gonna pick on MSPs here in a minute too. Best practices, right? If you go back and, and I actually read some of the documentation for Dentrix, it talks about LMNR inside of their installation guides. It's known as early as the installation of the application. It's interesting from that perspective, in my opinion. Best practices, right? All right, let's move forward from there. What I actually found out is there was a update 500.842 that had the actual problem. It was an optional update in Windows. However, 513.30 was the April cumulative update. It included it. And that's when things started to break because it became mandatory. MSPs, Jordan and I used to work at MSP. We used to do tested rollouts 
before we sent an update everywhere. Why was this an issue for so many places? It's hard, and Microsoft has enforced updates on systems now in different ways. It's harder to manage now than it used to be. It definitely changed in the last three years with the Windows updates, update cycles, but how they're now managing those updates. Do you have an RMM tool that's managing updates? Is it compatible with the new way that Microsoft is pushing updates? You still need to test these, right? A lot of the pain that we saw when I did this research could have been avoided if someone had tested those updates. Bear in mind, optional updates at some point might not become optional. And hey, internet, you you get a little blame here too. I'm not blaming you, but you get a little blame. If you see that a fix for one update seems to fix an issue for a very specific context, don't go to the rest of the internet and say, this is the absolute fix, because that's what's happening. If you look on Reddit, people are saying, yeah, 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 go ahead and enable LMNR, it fixes all your problems. What? No. No, 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 no. Okay, so that is the end of my rant. I have a couple more follow-ups on this, however. Thank you. There were, when I was doing this research, multiple users in Reddit, in forums, even in some of the discourse with, with Dentrix supporters or an MSP support that linked our blog. And it linked it. On, yeah, exactly. Linked our blog that said, wait up. You're saying enable LMNR, but this blog says don't. Can we reconsider and think about what's happening here? Thank you for everybody that did that, right? You, you did the internet a favor in doing that. Your reminders that <laughs> the risks of quick fixes may have saved someone's data. It may have saved someone's business. It may have saved jobs. Just by you saying, hold up, are you sure you want to do this? Now, this kind of comes back to, could have someone got hacked in nine days? Yeah, I mean, definitely could have. Was the potential there? Yes, did it happen? I don't know. I don't think anyone will actually ever know. But the point is for this, is right now, there are organizations that have enabled LMNR because a vendor told them to, because that was the quick fix. And the undoing of that is actually more difficult than the doing of it. That was the end of my rant on that, mostly. All right. I would like to, I guess, posit the question, is software development and security like a complete dichotomy where you cannot communicate and where it's always a race to product versus a race to a secure product? Is it you need to deploy a product and then you need to test your product? Like it's, it's a balance. And I said, I, I it's said a, that. It's a true nightmare. For we gen- talked about this. You can keep going. This is basically yeah. the PowerShell script. You need to go start disabling NBNS. And you can run this at, at boot. So say you run it at boot, maybe log on. I, I don't know. Somebody plugs in an Ethernet adapter with a USB. NBNS gets turned on, and you've got a vulnerable system. Wonderful one. WPAD. Okay, anytime you open up a browser, your browser is going to say, hey, WPAD, make a quick query for WPAD. What is WPAD? Well, it's an automatic configuration telling the browser where to find the local proxy for internet. Now, Microsoft did not provide a GPO to correct this. I tried to find a good reason why they didn't. You can make a group policy that sets a reg key. Such a nightmare. I think that's silly, personally, but it's effective. It's kind of gross, in my opinion, though, because I like think doing things effectively. Does this and- cover Firefox? As far as interesting, WPAD. interesting you bring that up. It does indeed use WPAD, which may be a reason why it's you mean not. the group policy extensions? Yeah. It, why it ADMX m- template. God, exactly. that goes back to those days. Another way of fixing this is you can actually create a DNS record for your suffix called WPAD. And it mostly resolves this. 
The reason why is before Windows accepts an LMNR result for WPAD, it's first going to query its local DNS server. And if it finds one called WPAD, it's going to query that WPAD address for uh, its automated configuration. And of course, if it's a fictitious or an invalid address that comes back from DNS, so it's actually not going to do anything. It's going to fail, which is good because that means no one can poison it. Very, very trivial for us to go in and say, responder, act as WPAD, go and start pulling creds before you allow anyone to use our uh, proxy through to get internet. Interesting thing on this, this will actually break. Specifically, creating a WPAD DNS record will break Windows 10 less than 1703 registration with Azure AD. Good news though, 1703 is no longer supported. So if you're on that, there's other problems going on you need to take care of. All right. Don't run unsupported software anymore, can't. File resource manager is awesome. I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and spend one side note here. We had a customer, I don't know, in the last few months that basically followed all the guidance we've provided and then expanded all the guidance we've provided. And it was one of the most fun tests I've been on forever because they forced me to stretch in every direction I could possibly stretch. I had to spend time reaching out to other testers and acting, asking around for, you know, it, all of these advanced techniques that, you know, are generally harder, right? So SMB signing was enforced, workstation firewalls, the file shares were limited. It, it was brilliant. I mean, they're catching me escalate privileges before I had even noticed. It was a fantastic test. So that was my side note. And then I figured out, all right, well, fine then. I'm going to go drop some LNK files and some URL files around the network. And guess what? This tool allows you to specify extensions that you don't want left around and probably files named password and clear text things. So search your file shares because I assure you, your adversaries are searching your file shares for the word password, credential, credit card. Yeah, I mean, you name it, there's a hundred. There's a reason my MCSE is retired because I've never learned about this. This is new. <laughs> this, this is, is new-ish. This yeah. is new-ish, yeah. It's absolutely amazing. I, I have a question that I'd like to, to post to you, Jordan. In a penetration test where you have a user account, just one user account, unprivileged, how often are you able to pivot using file shares that have authenticated user on them? I guess I might need a little clarification there. Sure. So are you, are you asking me, I found a file share that also allows the everyone group or authenticated users, like admin not, privilege not on even, a share? Not even right, just read. Just read, often, sadly, right? Because things like OVAs, and, or not OVAs very often, but WIM files, VIMs, VMDKs, these are things we just, we can download because we can read. Credentials and... Files named passwords? Often. This is not a great file to have. Although it's great for canary activity. We, we are going to, in a little bit, talk about ransomware very super briefly, but I want to say right now, ransomware, Racine, which if you watched the webcast a couple days ago, you saw it not work. We should probably blog so, uh, hang on. Let's let's wrap up where we are and why we're standing here yeah. at this point talking about defenses. And we're, we're, it seems like we're all over the board to me. Go ahead and you can bump shares. But basically, we're here to talk about the baseline things that still are beating up 50% or greater of networks around town, right? Pick, pick 50 businesses in your town. 25 of them have no clue what SMB Relay is, how LMNR works, or why they should care about the passwords their users are using. I had an interesting pen test this year, and it's related to this, where because 
there was a GPO that was overly permissive on faith sites that allowed us to create a LNK file that referenced an IP address on the internet, which consequently meant as soon as Internet Explorer or File Explorer opened it, it gladly sent the hash of the user to that IP address, even though it was over the internet. You don't see that very often, but it can happen, and it's kind of scary when it does. All right, SMB signing. It's past the hash, right? That's what we're preventing here. Yeah, credential relay, basically. Yep. Mm-hmm. Past the hash. It's, it's like, I don't know, MITM to relay credentials, whatever. The question still comes up, why wouldn't you do this? Well, back in the day, we would say, oh, this, has, this is going to slow down your file shares over the network. This is going to cause a bunch of CPU overhead, which it, it did, right? Does it still? I think computers are a lot faster and disks are a lot faster. That It's less of a worry. And ultimately, the gain you have in security posture way outweighs the, the vulnerability that's uh, present when you do not have this enabled. All Here's right. another quick win at layer two. Fire up a... DHCP server running v6 and then intercept DNS requests, then you can just relay again. Look back at that previous slide. If you're not enforcing SMB signing, which is a super easy win, and it's almost painless, almost painless. You turn it on, I'm guessing in 96% of cases, you're not going to notice that your systems now are checking the integrity of a request against SMB, which is one of those ports we love talking to because we can do remote procedure calls. We can talk to users, files. So it's this. How, how many organizations have prepared and have already started managing IP6? Probably 10%, maybe 20. I don't know. It's low. It's very, very low. So let's say SMB signing isn't forced. Let's go ahead and get after the DCs. You know, why wouldn't we? Because if you're not enforcing channel binding, all I need is a valid user to get a domain dump. If if the user is privileged, I've also got laps now. You got group managed service accounts. I've also got those creds. I can escalate my own user to enterprise admin and create work workstation objects or, or computer objects in your domain. If you're not doing LDAP signing or channel binding, these are these are stepped up enforcements, but they're basically painless. So uh, things to turn on that make our lives really challenging and make us stretch. Frank in Discord says, we all have IP6, but we don't use it. Well, lest ye be MITM6. <laughs> you, you do use it. You have it and you use yeah. it. Oh, You're yeah. just not managing it. Your systems are auto-addressing themselves. They're asking around for routers. Plug in, uh, plug in a Cali box, turn up MITM6, and watch the magic. Oh, goody, the, the Microsoft store. I still love this one, and it's still, like, it still works. Microsoft is making this harder to disable. And I can't really remember like the article and I couldn't find it just before here or just before the webcast. But what I did find is that there are options for disabling this. So this is probably something you should disable. And in my VM here, my test VM, guess what? You just go install Python 3.9 as a user and you get the idle interface, you get Python 3.9. And now you've got this amazing, amazing toolkit of everything that a pen tester could ever dream. If I were to say Python interpreters on a system can be dangerous and how that relates to EDRs, would you have anything to say about that? <laughs> These are trusted Microsoft installations, so they're generally trusted by the EDR. 
the EDR is not hooking its DLLs into these applications the way it does other, let's call it administratively installed tools. All right. So keep moving. Yeah, we got to roll. And we're not talking about this. This is a webcast you need to go um, review. The the list on the left, like what I say here is you can almost completely secure your environment with proper AD construction and group policy objects. Almost. Jason discussed with this pre-show banter. Can we just, can they just pay someone to do this? Yeah. Yeah. You can pay a consultant to do this. You can pay an easy button to do this, but remember, it's not always that easy. And remember one of the first bullets I had was understand your, your layers, right? Understand your OSI layers. That means that you can't just pay someone. You have to actually understand all the inputs and outputs. It's important. Let's just move on from that one. Laps is awesome unless you forgot to do channel binding because then we can just dump your Laps passwords. It's just a, it's, it's a plain text attribute stored in the AD schema with the password for the remote administrator. It's the local administrator account on remote systems. And if, if that original relay that we use through LLMNR or LNK poisoning or MITM6, if any of those are valid and net a privileged account, we also net your lapse passwords. I really do enjoy the idea of making the administrator account on the account and then creating a new administrator for lapse. And we think like Brad's test recently was interesting enough that he may have run into this scenario. We just haven't confirmed yet. Network logons. So there's some things that you should be aware of in AppInvector that are not immediately apparent. You can deny access to computers from the network, which is a really great way of limiting impact for user compromise. There's also a really great group called Protected Users, and it's a special group in Active Directory, and it does some very interesting things. It's normally just used for especially privileged or domain admins, accounts like that, your DCs. However, all the members have some special care taken by Active Directory. There's no more weak. Kerberos keys, RC4, DES, go away, can't request them, can't ask for the downgrades that you do in most normal Kerberosting attacks. Automatically uh, prevents past the hash, removes your unconstrained delegation. Not allowed for those accounts anymore. Your clear text creds are not, not yep. going to be in LSAS. What's interesting about this, do you want to put like all of your users in such protected users? You probably could. I haven't tested it. It'd be interesting to see what happens. Most things are going to work. What I'm suspecting Maybe. might not work are going to be printers. Who knows what's going to happen there, yeah. right? Yeah. But the, the key thing here is if you have any highly privileged accounts that are not inside of that, they are prime for picking by an adversary because it's, they're easy to find. Absolutely. All right. Moving on from there. Managed service accounts. These are awesome. You, you know, look into these if you don't know what they are. You know, we, we used to have like Pam's, like Psychotic was the big one. That could manage your service accounts for you. Essentially, you told Thycotic you could have the ability to change passwords and have a service account set up so that Thycotic would change the service account and then go tell the service what the new service account password was. It would all keep, always keep them in, in sync, and you never had to worry about a Auditable, registrable, yeah. trackable. Microsoft did this for you. It's now included, right? So you can effectively have an account that is being used as a service for service authentication, rather. And that password can change routinely. And it's using managed service accounts. You can enable it in Active Directory with no extra add-ons. The, the commands are right here to do it up. There's a couple of commands you're missing to get it fully set up. But essentially what you do is you create the account, have it set up with the password, with the MSA service. 
and then you tell the service how to use that account, and there you're good. You know, every uh, according to your password policy, it will reset as it needs to, to to be in line with that, and then that password will be rotational, and the service account will still work for your services. Yeah, let's say Linda changed her password on the 90-day rotation, and we got, what, summer 2021 coming up? So Linda changes her password, and that box reboots for Windows updates, and all of a sudden your SQL Express installation is down. You have no idea. And you're, you're, you're going to look at the box, except you figure out that unintentionally Linda registered an SPN with your Active Directory, a service principal name. And that's also something we can request with the Kerber roasting attack. So there's a lot of considerations here, but this basically solves the problem. It's moving on from this one. Okay. To use the same attacks, it just it feels the same. It feels like we're regurgitating, but truly we're trying to condense all the material again just to make life. Listen, do all of your users need PowerShell? It's a yes or no question. If the answer is no, then restrict it so you don't have access to it. Same with CSC.exe with all those, all those right there, right? Do your users need them? If they don't, restrict them because it's giving leverage for adversaries to abuse them, especially because Microsoft already trusts them, especially msbuild.exe. You can use msbuild.exe to actually run code that appears to be trusted because the actual invocation is from msbuild. Very interesting. Also, turn on your host-based firewalls. Is there a reason you, you need them turned off? Turn them on. All right, keep going. Speaking of ransomware, did you watch the webcast a couple days ago? If you don't, didn't, do. By the way, Racine. So Racine is a really interesting method of handling ransomware. John goes into a lot of detail about how it works and, and kind of gives a demo that unfortunately didn't work at the time. I think you ran into like some Windows update issues, but listen, what Racine uh, does- Update issues, installation issues, internet issues. So everything you could possibly ask to go wrong on a webcast went wrong. Yeah, it's, it's okay. Life goes on. He was in a nice place at the time anyway, but the point is that most ransomware is going to first delete a VSS admin or use VSS admin to delete the VSS shadow copies. The idea being that if you remove the shadow copies, you can't just revert back to old data after the ransomware encrypts it. Racine hooks into that, watches VSS admin, watches for those deletes and prevents it from happening and notifies you right away if anything tries to delete VSS shadow copies. So let's say Bob, the account, got an email and clicked on a link, gets ransomware. The next slide says, well, why can they talk to each other? Turn on your workstation firewalls. They shouldn't be talking to each other. Also, under what circumstances should a workstation be talking to another workstation? They really shouldn't. They really shouldn't. Also, 139 and 445 going out over the internet, also 137. Why? Right? Those are, those are ports specifically for SMB and RPC. Do you need them over the internet? And what I talked about earlier about being able to grab hashes over the internet because a safe site's trusted, this is a case situation, excuse me, where we're able to do that. And it's very interesting when that happens. You do not need to have outbound ports for 445, 139, 137. RPCs over SMB is very interesting. Consider using DC Sync to do something like that and dump those ashes. It's, this is the emoji here really is how I feel when I get to this point in a lot of tests, because it's painful. It's like, you know, can we affect change from our position as penetration? Sure. Can we affect change as trainers? Sure. But really, at the end of the day, organizations have to take the initiative, spend the money, allocate the resources, improve their security programs, and buy in. Like, you've got to buy in to make this problem go away. Really quick. We really don't have time, but something caught my eye in Discord. VoIP. 
you typically have a phone and you have your system connected behind it, use VLANs to separate the two. Also, games need to connect between workstations. I think that's a joke, sarcastic. <laughs> if you have games in your corporate environment, don't. All right, moving on. Canary accounts, use them, right? The Canary cool... docs, too. Yes, definitely. The idea behind it is that if you have a Canary account, give it a simple password that can be password sprayed. Go ahead and put the hash out somewhere online, whatever. The idea here is that as soon as someone tries to authenticate with it, immediately sound the alarms and go find the source of that attack and block it, right? And then make sure your system, all systems everywhere have it blocked. When you do that, make sure you set login times to deny login. You don't want these systems to, or these accounts to actually be able to log in. You just want to be able to give them the appearance that they did. So make sure you log into at least once. Go ahead and create a folder direction. If you have folder direction, put files in there that look interesting. And set alerts. Set these up so that you know as soon as one of your Canary accounts are tagged that you can find out about it. All right, network analysis. Going back to network. Interesting thing. Rita is free. It's a system that developed by Active Countermeasures, Offensive Countermeasures, Black Hills Information Security. It's free. What it helps you do are beacon detection. So typically when you have malware, a command and control environment, you'll have a system that is infected. You have a command and control server, and the two will talk to each other on a routine frequency. Rita goes and finds that frequency and identifies where those systems are. Very, very interesting, and very quickly find, detect, and alert on beacons. Yeah, no moniker, and your point there. We, we not only need those juniors to get rushed up to speed, we need juniors to help. We, we have the same problem here right now. I mean, we've got DRock who's killing it as a sysadmin, but there's not a day goes by that he couldn't use help, right? I mean, security is a, a lifelong challenge that is constantly changing and evolving, and we definitely need resources in this industry. And that's why Kent and I preach to our local school districts. It's why we have relationships trying to get kids into computer science. It's why John's been teaching kids like 13 and 14-year-olds to get through Python and we, we need more. The industry needs more, and there's, there's more demand than there is resource, right? Look, my second slide that says new in 2021, or third slide. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, playbooks are awesome. Microsoft is developing playbooks for, it's, for IR. It's amazing. It's, I'm happy about it. It's stoked. Listen, we can talk about credential abuse. We can talk more about it. We can talk about credential hardening. But the point is here, we see Microsoft still making moves on this, which is super awesome, and we super, super encourage it. Someone mentioned about how do you uh, catch... Canary accounts to being logged in. Yeah, with your SIM, I mean, even less than that, you can actually create a custom view inside of your Active Directory logs. But definitely, in fact, we have a class about stuff like that. Yeah, relatively right. straightforward. I, I think we should pro- maybe unpack that a little more, yeah. right? If, if you're asking about how do you use a Canary account to detect things, let's think about it this way. If, if you catch a Kerberos attack because you have a planted service principle in your domain that always fires on request, right? If you go back to the logon hours, the account should never log on, but it does have a registered SPN, which is enumerable by members of the domain, valid members of the domain. This allows you to know if there's bad behavior going on because someone requested a service ticket, which should never authenticate, or, or I apologize, that should never be requested as a ticket operation for an account, right? The account should never be doing anything on the network. If something happens, boom, you've just caught Kerberosting. Bloodhound, very similar. The account and its group memberships should never be enumerated. However, that same account can be used to detect Bloodhound. 
Third, if someone tries to log on to that account, i.e. or a la password spray, guess what? You've just triggered again. Interesting. We could have a whole conversation, a whole webcast on Bloodhound, how to catch it, but we're not going to. <laughs> we don't have time right now. No. Use a SIM, right? Get those logs centralized so that you can look at them. Effectively, we're talking about Windows event logs, but more than that, if you get them into a central location, then you can start running other tools that develop patterns inside of those event logs, and you can start using things like Sigma rules to you know, identify those patterns and actually alert on things that are more important than just specific event ID that says, yeah, an account tried to log in because of a password spray, but actually identifying the password spray itself, right? Very important. All right. That is actually brings us to the end. Mr. Jason, good to see you again. Hey, everybody. All right. So we got some questions. We may stick around for an extra few minutes if you have time. First question is, how do you manage to protect accounts added to scheduled tasks? Seems always possible to obtain LSAS, GMSA, question mark. So a few things going on there, right? Scheduled tasks is a very common threat vector. So I think a lot of EDRs are even managing scheduled tasks at this point. So they're, they're checking and monitoring. And I know Defender caught me on the last macro I tried to execute, which creates a scheduled task. But that's not to say that it's still not a threat vector. I don't know how else to unpack that. I, what I would add to that is that if the big suite of everything Microsoft, you now have Power Automate which is going to dramatically change everything you are doing in scheduled tasks. Fletch would like to have words with you about Power Automate. This is a, have you used Aaron Locker from Aaron Margoes? It's have a not, GitHub repository. Yeah. We'll check it out though. Yeah, post a link. Yeah, so, I will post a link. Thank you. Um, do you think? We are nothing if not interested in research and testing things, especially like fun, let's stop bad things from happening. Oh, that's cool. It's a Microsoft GitHub. I'm in. <laughs> we have this one. Probably need to call out that protected users will always break access if you're using Azure Bastion to access the main controllers as the protocol used by Bastion is downgraded to NTLM. Well, that's interesting. And not surprising, right? Yeah, that's a very interesting comment in that it breaks things for sure. And not just the attacks. I want to, I want to, I'm going to investigate that. I like that, but it tells me there's another problem. Yeah, there is. We don't have an Azure Bastion. <laughs> we might. Yeah, we could ask James and see where he is with that thing. I know he had got that project at least sinking. So, yeah, we, we play with the things we see consistently. And ADFS is one of those things we had one of our guys work out. And so now we're, we're two-way syncing, and we're testing other things and fun things. And Hey, uh, Jason, so, I want a blue team tie. Can you, can you hook me up, a blue team tie? Are <laughs> I we want doing it? We can, <laughs> we can take a look at blue team ties. All right. Last question is, red team, purple team resources, books, courses, certifications you can recommend, please. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Well, if you're interested in blue teaming, we've got a great class coming up that we just talked about. If you're interested in purple team, we have a great class that we'll be talking about later this year. If you are talking about red teaming, there's another great class. Several great classes. Several great classes. Check out Wildwest Hacking Fest. There's going to be a ton of them out there for training. In terms of other resources, I still have my red team playbook. 
sitting by my desk at all times. And blue team playbook, handbook. And hashcrack. Um, yes. At, at my desk at all times. Very useful. Very good. They're, I don't say they're old, but they're not new anymore. And they're still highly relevant. So. I know. I yeah. still pull that thing out. And also right. you're here. So you're, you've got that part. You're awesome on that. All right. So any final words, Jordan and Kent? Again, this is a baseline. This is the stuff that slows us down as pen testers, which means slows down your adversaries. There's a lot of material here and a lot of references to other material. So let our years of research and testing like help guide your security posture moving forward. And again, if you're looking for buy-in from executives, start with an internal pen test. Also, really quick, I don't blame Dentrix or Microsoft. Dish. All right, everybody, thank you for joining us for this Black Hills Information Security webcast. We do have a new SOC services managed by Black Hills Information Security. If you're interested in learning more about our SOC services, and this is the advertisement part of the webcast we waited to the very end, feel free to leave. But if you are interested in SOC services, say demo in the chat section. So if you go in where you can put a question in, just say the word demo, and we'll reach out, and our team will reach out. And so with that, thank you all very much for being here. I'll wait a few seconds in case people are actually writing demo. But that is it for today. Next week, we have Joff. Joff Thire is going to give us a webcast on shell code and Golang. I'm not quite sure what any of those are, but I'm excited to find out about it. <laughs> and then Bo's, Bo's got one on cloud pen testing on Azure. And then the week after that, Ralph is giving a four-hour workshop on phishing. So actually how to do phishing. And then later that night, we're doing a two-hour workshop on atomic red teaming. And then the week after that, I'm giving a presentation on presentations. That's going to be the most meta presentation that you've ever seen in your life. Hey, Sounds like we're busy. busy. Are we busy? We are. When's, yeah. when's the 24-hour? The 24-hour is in October. Like, okay. uh, That's good timing for Chili's, I'm telling you. Okay. The plants right, we have will be, yay, and we'll have buckets. Hours in all right, and with that, I will say goodbye to everyone. Thank you so much for being here. We'll see you all next time. Bye! I'm going to end the webinar.